Good evening. It's lovely to see you all. My name is Jeff. Um, and, uh, and truly, uh, I cannot begin to tell you how excited that I am to be here with you all this evening. Um, as, as Busby said, I have, I have prayed for you all for a long time. I think of you all often. Uh, thank you to Joel and to the elders for welcoming me here and, and letting me enjoy this blessing of bringing God's word tonight. Um, I'm so grateful uh, for the ministry that, that you all are doing in this part of Birmingham and your witness for Jesus in this city. And uh, you have a reputation. You, you should know that. Um, uh, every, every church kind of does. Uh, but you have a reputation for your hospitality, for your authenticity, and for your kindness. And it is my prayer that the Lord would continue to grow that reputation throughout our city uh, for this family of faith. Um, and so thank you for your kindness in welcoming me here tonight. Uh, last week, you all began your summer series in Psalm 23. And uh, Grace Elder, Josh Firth, preached on that first verse, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And if this is your first time here at Grace Fellowship, or if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Josh's sermon. Uh, not only will it help you kind of have a, a, a setting for where the rest of this summer series in Psalm 23 is going, um, but it is a beautiful meditation on the way that the Lord provides for us. And tonight, we're going to be picking up, uh, we are going to look back a little bit at verse 1, um, but we're going to go through to the first half of verse 3. And so to begin our time, I will read the full psalm for us. So let us listen carefully, for this is God's word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In our New Testament reading this evening, which I will find shortly, I don't know if... This is what I'm always afraid of, is that some, some kid's going to come up here and, and just like take all the notes and, and scatter them about, and that appears to be what has happened. <laughs> all right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is your gracious will. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Triune God, we are here by your love. Whether we know you or not, whether we love you or not, we are here because of your love. And you know us. You know each and every one of us. In fact, you know us better than we know ourselves, and yet inexplicably you love us. So help us tonight, Lord, to know you, to love you. And by your Spirit, God, give us ears to hear and the mouths to praise you. Give us hearts to adore you and minds to obey you. There's no one here, Lord, who does not need your love and your grace tonight. So, Lord, in our time together, Would you renew our hearts and our minds that we might trust in you with our whole hearts and rest in your love? So would you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So... I'm from a little town called Paducah, Kentucky. Have any of you ever heard of Paducah, Kentucky? Yeah? Has anyone been to Paducah, Kentucky? That is 10 times more than I anticipated. Um, Okay. Well, uh, well, yes, uh, I'm I'm originally from Paducah, Kentucky, and... uh, and there is a, the prince of Paducah, kind of, uh, is Irvin Cobb. Has anyone ever heard of Irvin Cobb? No. Uh, even those that have been to Paducah, you probably drove across a bridge, the Irvin Cobb Bridge. Um, Irvin Cobb was the youngest editor of a national paper uh, in his time. He was from the early 20th century. He was also uh, the... Uh, the, the first person to, to have the, the role as a journalist under uh, Pulitzer uh, to, to be the highest paid journalist in the country. He was 19 years old. Um, and so he's kind of the, the, the prince of Paducah. Um, not a lot happens in Paducah. Now we would just say it's Stephen Curtis Chapman, um, which he's a, he's a fantastic prince of Paducah as well. Um, I Seriously, this has been... Uh, thrown into the air, and then caught. (laughs) I have no idea what's happening anymore. All right, we'll just roll with it. This is wild. Okay. So, uh, Irving Cobb was notoriously non-religious. He he wrote a number of plays, a lot of uh, fiction books, um, after his years as a journalist. And uh, one of the most fascinating things that he wrote are actually the directions for his own funeral arrangements. Uh, 
And so this is what uh, Irving Cobb had to say. Um, he said, kindly observe the final wishes of the undersigned and avoid reading the so-called Christian burial service. Cobb goes on. In deference to the faith of our dear mother, who was through her life a loyal, though never bigoted, communicant of the congregation, perhaps the current pastor of the First Presbyterian Church would consent to read the 23rd Psalm. That was her favorite psalm in the scriptures and is mine, since it contains no carnal words, no morbid mouthings, no corruption and decay, and being mercifully without creed or dogma. It carries no threat of eternal hellfire for those parties we do not like, nor a direct promise of heaven, which, if one may judge from the people who are surest that they are going there, must be a powerfully dull place, populated by the considerable and uncomfortable people, time servers, and unpleasantly aggressive individuals. Hell may have a worse climate, but undoubtedly the company is sprightlier." End quote. The 23rd Psalm. Cobb notes it is mercifully without creed or dogma. Is that how you think of it? Um, when, when we approach the 23rd Psalm, there's so many different things that can come to mind. If we want to take an academic approach, we can start to consider it, well, what category does it go into with all the other Psalms? And actually, that's, that's kind of a, a tricky task. There's not really a clear-cut uh, category in the classical classification of the Psalms. If we take a more uh, experiential approach, an observational approach, that would be when do we hear it used the most? When do we see people using the, the 23rd Psalm? What, what memories come to your mind considering the 23rd Psalm? Now, for me, um, I know that there are, there are lots of different poets throughout the centuries uh, like Miles Coverdale, Thomas Sternhold, George Herbert, who, who reworked the words and engaged it as poets. Also poets like Coolio, who used uh, this psalm as the first line for his uh, number one single of 1995, Gangsta's Paradise, where he said, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left. My mind always goes to that every time I hear it, uh, which is unfortunate because I usually hear it at a funeral. Uh, and that's not when you really want to be thinking about Coolio. But this is observationally when we typically hear the 23rd Psalm. It's cross-stitched into pillows. It's read at graveside services. But at that point, it just becomes this vague communal psalm that, that everyone can kind of have access to. So is Cobb right? Is the 23rd Psalm a generic poem of comfort? A general, non-exclusive encouragement to fear not and to persevere through the toughest valleys of life? Is that why it's so widely recognizable? Because it actually is free from doctrine and particular beliefs. Well, that very well might be the cultural understanding of Psalm 23, but that's far from the truth of the text itself. Because you don't get to fear no evil without the work of the shepherd. 
You don't get to lie down in green pastures without the work of the shepherd. You don't get led beside still waters or your soul restored without the work of the shepherd. But maybe, maybe Cobb was partially right in his assessment of Psalm 23. Maybe from a distance, if you stand way back, you will only see a vague prayer with vaguely comforting words. And from a distance, the words are mercifully without creed or dogma. Perhaps if you can keep the psalm at an arm's length away and only recite it at those graveside services, only keep it on the cross stitch that's decorating the walls, maybe then you can employ it, you can use it as a generic poem of generic comfort. But that's only possible if you keep it at bay and refuse to pay attention to what it actually has to say. Because if you do, if you, if you do listen to the words of the shepherd King David, and you let these words become the words of your own mouth, a confession from your own soul, then the depth of their truth is not only unfathomable, it's a truth that is transformative. These words are transformative because they declare for us the very real work of the very real shepherd. These words confess our singular hope in what the shepherd has accomplished, what he is accomplishing right now in our midst, and what he has promised to accomplish in the future. And I think it's helpful for us here at the start to acknowledge this strange history of Psalm 23 how it's been understood and utilized, because that will help us avoid the typical pitfalls that come with scriptures that are familiar to so many of us. Counter to common practice, this psalm is not to be offered as a balm to another. It's not a hallmark sympathy card for someone else. And that's because Psalm 23 is not a word of comfort to others, other psalms do that, but not here. This is a personal confession offered to the Lord. So if I had to come up with a category for Psalm 23, I think I would call it a psalm of confessional trust. It, it, it's taking what is believed and stating it aloud as a confession and inviting the Holy Spirit to fortify our faith and our trust. It's a personal confession that leads, to the, the, leads the individual to a deeper trust in Jesus himself. And a confession is a belief spoken. It's a belief that's been put into words. And a helpful picture of this is found in the Gospel of John. John was describing how more and more people were coming to believe in Jesus, and he writes this in chapter 12. Many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So there were people who believed, but they were not confessing it. Belief and confession are supposed to work together. Confession is a belief declared, 
And confession is the building block of trust. And Josh talked about this last Sunday in the first sermon in this series when he talked about letting go of our need for control. We will only let go of our sense of control, our sense of entitlement, our sense of self-reliance. We will only let go of those things when we trust more in Jesus than we trust in ourselves. And one of the ways that we grow in that trust is through confession. We grow in trust when we grow in confession. That is, when we declare the truth about Jesus. And Psalm 23 stands as an invitation for us, an invitation to confession, to borrow the words of the shepherd king David and for them to become our own words. So this evening, we're going to consider the confession that we find at the start of Psalm 23, starting in verse 1. Look with me. The first confession of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The psalm begins with a personal declarative confession that the Lord is my shepherd. And I want to highlight two aspects that are are helpful to point out about this confession. First, the subject of this statement is the Lord, that is Yahweh the personal name of God. When you see in your Bibles or uh, in your worship guide, the Lord in all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord, uh, that is an indicator for the personal name of God, Yahweh. Uh, It's not a vague Lord that we're talking about, an unnamed deity. It is the Lord, Yahweh, God himself. So the first part of this confession explicitly refers to Yahweh, the God of Israel. The other noteworthy aspect of this first confession is that David is declaring that Yahweh is his shepherd. David knew sheep well. He had tended his father's sheep growing up. This is a classic example of write what you know. Here, David sits down to write out this psalm, to write out this prayer, to write out this hymn, and he writes what he knows. David knows sheep and he knows the work of the shepherd. In fact, David uh, tells King Saul of his time as a shepherd in 1 Samuel 17, where it says, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. So if David is confessing that Yahweh is his shepherd, then what we can infer here is another confession, an implied confession. And that implied confession is this. If the Lord is my shepherd, then I must be his sheep. Yahweh is my shepherd. I am his sheep. Now, sheep are not commonly known as the most noble of animals. If I said to you, don't be a sheep, what would I mean? You can talk back. A coward? Don't be a follower? That's right. Don't don't follow the crowd. Don't don't shirk back from from, uh, whatever challenge might be in front of you. Don't be so easily directed by others. Sheep are known for their compliance, their obedience, I mean, think of it. There are dogs 
that give sheep direction and the sheep will obey. What other situation is there where one animal gives direction to another animal and that other animal is like, sounds good. (laughs) David begins this prayer by confessing, by stating that Yahweh is my shepherd and he implies the confession, I am his sheep. And because he is my shepherd and I am his sheep, I lack nothing. And again, Josh did a great job last week on what it means to not want in light of the Lord's provision. In short, to lack nothing means that everything you need, which above all else is reconciliation with the Father God, what you most desperately need in life, you already have in Jesus. Everything you need to have Everything you need to be, everything you need to do, you already have, already are, and already have done in Christ Jesus. That is the hope, what we call the gospel, the good news about Jesus. He is everything you need. You lack nothing. That is what is meant when we say this first confession, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. Nothing I shall not want. And the second confession is the outworking, the consequences of the Lord being our shepherd. Look with me at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. This second confession is the declaration of the work of the shepherd. The three things listed. He makes me lie down. He leads me. He restores me. And just like there was an implied confession in that first one, we are sheep, there's an implied confession here as well. And the implied confession in verse 2 is, sheep have needs. In Psalm 23, we were invited to confess the work of the shepherd And out of that confession, we confess that he tends to the needs that we all have as his sheep. When we say that the Lord is our shepherd, we're not only declaring that we belong to God, but we are confessing the work that the shepherd does for us. And we can understand our needs better by considering the work that the shepherd does for us. David lists these three actions Three acts of tending that the shepherd does. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So if the good shepherd makes me lie down, then that means that I need rest. And if the good shepherd leads me to still waters, your translation might even call waters of rest, then that means that I am in need of cleansing and refreshment. And if the good shepherd restores my soul, then that means my soul is in need of restoration. So who needs rest? The exhausted. Who needs refreshment? The weak. Who needs restoration? The broken. When we confess the work of the good shepherd, 
We are also admitting our needs. We admit that we are exhausted, that we are weak, that we are broken. And on our own, we cannot address these needs. No more than a sheep can tend themselves. We require the work of the good shepherd. And Psalm 23 is an invitation to confession. We are invited to borrow the words of David to declare both our need and the promises of the good shepherd to tend his sheep. Now, I want to linger on that for a moment and ask you to consider honestly to yourself and before the Lord, consider your rest. We do not live in a culture where your rest is prioritized, not in the way that God intends it. No, in our culture, we can definitely find countless meditation apps and books on better work and life rhythms. Most of the time, these things are pitched, though, as a means for greater productivity. Even a good night's sleep is in order to accomplish more in your waking hours. If you, uh, like, uh, often... I see that these, these things that are, that are made, that are, that are at least trying to prompt us to consider rest, are categorized in the realm of productivity. Do this so you can do more, so you can accomplish more. And our culture of productivity calls us to be better rested people so we can achieve more. And that's not the rest that God has for us. In another psalm, Psalm 127, written by Solomon, it says this, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he, God, gives to his beloved sleep. God gives to his beloved Sleep. How many of you can, can see yourself in Psalm 127? Those who in vain rise up early and go late to rest. That's called burning the candle at both ends, right? And so often we can think that this must be the way that God wants us to live. We've got a mission, right? We've got, we've got this great commission and we're just supposed to pour it all out and we're supposed to live at this breakneck pace. And that's not what we're being called to. We're being called to be a sacrifice, yes, but a living sacrifice, not a crashing, dying, burning out sacrifice, a sustainable sacrifice, living. Rise up early, go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. You don't even have to get an ESV study Bible to understand what the bread of anxious toil is. We all kind of have a sense. We have this sense definition that can come right up into our minds of, yeah, I've eaten that bread before. I, I know that bread, the bread of anxious toil. In fact, many days I subsist just on the bread of anxious toil. And I get up early and I go to bed late. And for some reason, I think other people should applaud that when really I need a shepherd to come near and say, you don't have to live like that anymore. 
God gives sleep to his beloved. He makes you lie down in fields of grass and lead you to waters of rest. So what do we do if we don't feel rested? What's wrong? What's amiss here? Well, one thought can be, if God gives sleep and rest to his beloved, perhaps my sin has caused him to love me less. Maybe I'm not the beloved. And one of my favorite encouragements, uh, when, when, when my soul gets weary in this sense, I tend to go to the voices that spoke a long time ago. Because those words tend to, uh, to have a little bit more weight in my heart and my mind because they've been tested and they've stuck around. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher in 1859, preached a sermon on Zephaniah and God resting in his love. And he said these words. I'd like to read a quote to you. Quote, Can sin ever make Jesus cease to love me? I'm going to pause. That might seem like a weird question. But if you take enough time and you're honest with yourself enough, you've probably asked it before. Maybe not in those exact words, but in some translation of that. I'll say it again. Can sin ever make Jesus cease to love me? Spurgeon's response to himself, if so, Jesus would have ceased to love me long ago. If there had been any iniquity that I could commit that would divide me from Christ's love, I think that I should have been separated from his love long before now. For in looking back my own life, I am compelled with shame and confusion of face to fall on my knees and confess that he has had a thousand reasons for thrusting me out of the doors if he had chosen to. And he would have had a million excuses if he had resolved to blot out my name from the book of life. If Christ had intended to cast us away because of our sins, why did he ever take us on? Did he not know beforehand that we would be rebellious? And did not in his omniscient eye see all of our sins and detect all of our follies? Are we ungrateful? He knew that we would be. Are our sins extremely heinous? He knew how heinous they would be. He could foresee all. Every spot that would be upon us was upon us before his omniscient eye when he chose us. Every fault that we should commit was already committed in his estimation. He foreknew and foresaw all. Yet, he chose us just as we were. End quote. It's not a lack of love that we don't have rest. He gives rest to his beloved. You are his beloved in Christ. So, if it's not a lack of love... Why don't we have this rest? If the good shepherd tends his sheep and he is your shepherd and you are his sheep, then shouldn't you have rest and refreshment and restoration of the soul? So often we are exhausted and weak because we refuse the work of the shepherd. It's not because he isn't offering us rest. 
It's because we are so focused on our own accomplishments, our own works, and achieving rest on our own terms that we neglect the rest that he has for us. So what does this neglect look like? I believe one of the ways that we neglect the work of the good shepherd is by forgetting that we are sheep. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are lions and bears. We are self-reliant. We do not need any tending to. I take care of me. I set out to conquer my schedule with my accomplishments and my commitments because my work is my top priority. But that's not the life of the sheep. Sheep don't focus on their own work. Sheep are not that productive. Milk and wool, which they produce by existing, they just keep living and the milk will come and the wool will grow. My grandmother uh, passed away a couple of weeks ago, and yes, we did read the 23rd Psalm at her graveside. But a few years ago, she gave me a book by April Armstrong. It was published in 1956. It was called The Tales Christ Told. It's about the parables of Jesus. And one of Armstrong's lines about the parable of the lost sheep has really stuck with me. She writes that the affection that a shepherd has for his sheep is, quote, more than its wool could warrant, end quote. In other words, the love a shepherd has for his sheep is inordinate to the value of its wool. The shepherd loves the sheep more than it is worth. Why? Because the shepherd, to the shepherd, the the sheep is worth more than just its wool or its milk or its meat. The obedient sheep know the voice of their shepherd and they follow where he leads and receive the blessing of his work. The 23rd Psalm offers us borrowed language for us to use as a confession to declare the truth of God. And we can and we should borrow this language. Let those words become our own words. But Psalm 23 cannot offer you borrowed trust. Let me say that again. We can and should use the words David, the shepherd king, has written here in Psalm 23 to be our words, to borrow those words for our confession that we might grow in our trust in Jesus alone. But while we can borrow David's words, we cannot borrow his trust. We cannot borrow his faith. We cannot borrow his relationship as the sheep to the shepherd. That must be our own. We are to look to the shepherd ourselves and trust him, to trust in his work and his goodness and his love, and to follow him as he leads us to the place of rest and refreshment and restoration for our souls. The Great Commission is rightfully quoted a lot in church, but it's often quoted in a truncated version. 
you may hear, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Stop. But Jesus continued. He said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus might as well have said, be sure to teach these new disciples to be my sheep. Teach them to follow the voice of the shepherd because I'm going to lead them to my rest. So the question tonight is a question that Busby has asked me hundreds of times, and maybe you as well, and that is, how is your soul? How is your soul tonight? Are you exhausted, weak, broken? Because the good shepherd calls to you tonight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Brothers and sisters, you no longer have to eat the bread of anxious toil. You are invited to eat the bread that you did not buy, that you could never afford. You are invited to the bread of life that will sustain you as no other. Because it is the good pleasure of the good shepherd to tend to his sheep. And tonight, may each of us borrow the words of David and confess with our lips the trust that is in our hearts. Trust in the work and the rest of Christ alone, the great shepherd of the sheep. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, it can be quite humbling to view ourselves rightly as your sheep. It can be quite humbling to admit how much we need But Lord, by your spirit, would you impress upon each of our hearts the truth of who you are and the work that you alone can do. Lord, there are many of us here who came into this place anxious, who came into this place weak and exhausted in need of your restoration. And so, Spirit, we ask that you would move in such a way that our souls would be nourished, that we would surrender to your work and receive the gift of rest. Rest that we cannot fight for or work for in our own way or on our own terms, but that we would yield, Lord, that we would yield and surrender and in our surrendering receive the work of the great shepherd. Lord, we ask these things in the name of Christ our King. Amen.